0: With us today is Amy Jen Su. She is the author, most recently, of the book, The Leader You Want to Be, Five Essential Principles for Bringing Out Your Best Self Every Day. She's a fellow Harvard Business Review writer. She is the founding and managing partner of Paravis Partners. And she's an executive coach. So what I really like doing in this podcast is getting as practical and real as possible, and so it's exciting to be speaking to someone who's on the ground with people like I am, working to help them make the kinds of changes that will help them to be more successful. So it's not a theoretical or conceptual conversation. It's a very practical one. Amy, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast.
1: Thanks, Peter, for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So why did you write The Leader You Want to Be?
1: You know, The Leader You Want to Be is really part of a larger mission I've had as an executive coach. In terms of the hope I have for myself and others to be who they're meant to be, make the impact they're meant to make, and do that without all the sacrifices and compromises that I think we all feel we make towards our health, our families, or even our integrity. And so this is just a continuation of work that I've been doing for almost two decades. And I think as I think about organizational life and how much more complex and fast it's gotten, it feels like this the timing's right for a book like this. So I'm going to
0: sort of full disclosure here. I almost passed on this book because I I looked at it and I and I looked at the title and it's like five essential things for bringing out your best self and, you know, be the best leader you could possibly be. And and it it felt, um, you know, I get I I get probably two or three hundred books a year for the podcast and I read or at least look through most of them and I was like, ah you know, another book about being your best self, like not interested. And then, and I didn't pass. I mean, then I looked at it and I actually read more into it. And I'm so glad that I didn't pass on it because I actually think it's, it's really great. And I love how practical it is. So I do sort of want to start out by asking you this question, because I do think this like, be your best self and, (laughs) and, you know, better this year, better than last year. And, it, it, I get exhausted just thinking about it, and I also wonder whether there's some destructiveness in, like, constantly pursuing, you know, better, more perfect, you know, no excuses, improve who you are today so you're better than you were yesterday. Like, I think it gets tiring, and I yeah. wonder so – so anyway, my question to you is, you know, is it really important to bring our best self every day, and is there a downside to it?
1: Such a fair question, Peter, honestly. And in a way, I hope this book reframes and redefines best self, if you will. Um, I think in this case, in this book, best self is not trying to say the superhuman, Peter, you need to be Superman or, hey, Amy, you need to be Superwoman and be going 24-7 a day. Um, And it's also not, hey, you can just take a pass and be reactive and be on autopilot and be a bunch of old habits and patterns. And so in this book, my hope is folks say, Hey, who is the best self that's authentic, that is true to who you are, your principles and values. Um, it's not easy because sometimes being conscious and present to say in this moment, what is really the right thing to do, uh, can be challenging, but that's my hope that, it's less about striving for some perfection or yet another should, but instead to tap into a greater truth and a greater essence to who we want to be in the world. So
0: paint very briefly, if you can, this picture of these two leaders that you talk about in the book.
1: Sure. Uh, in the book, we characterize a leader A and a leader B, and in some ways, two modes we all find ourselves in, right? Right. Leader A is that part of us. Sometimes you even wake up and know, wow, I'm holding a broad lens on the world today. I'm not taking things personally. Even when life throws a curveball, it feels like I can handle it with a little more ease and effectiveness. And then leader B lives within all of us too, right? Where we're more uh, reactive. We're a little less effective. uh, We're a little more burnt out. And so leader A and leader B and the characterization of those two modes, if you will, were meant to just have all leaders and professionals realize we're all going through the same thing and feeling the same tensions.
0: So one of these pitfalls, there's some pitfalls that lead us to becoming leader B, the sort of more reactive, tense leader, as opposed to the more expansive, maybe visionary leader. And, and one of the pitfalls is, you know, I'll just do more pitfall. Wow. And, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I found myself asking this question as I was reading the book also because I, there was more things to do, right? When you're reading the book, it's going to kind of help you to get clearer on some things, which is actually more to do. So how does this not become one more thing to do that, that sort of conspires to send us down the I'll just do more pitfall?
1: Such a great question that I'll just do more, which is so pervasive in society and for all of us. And I think the key distinction is, are we just doing more for the sake of volume or a should, or are we just doing more of the value add and what we know really brings out our best self or makes us feel effective? There's usually a few things that we all already know, and then we lose touch with that. You know, what are the two or three things that you, Peter or I Amy do that you know we know whether that 's a good night's sleep or the way we say our yeses and nos can make the difference between just doing more value add versus doing more volume
0: right and you know it it, it you, you you make this great point here that i that it's kind of a favorite point of mine because I think it's our biggest challenge, which is we know so much more than we do it 's this gap between what we know and what we do and 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 what I talk a lot about is is emotional courage, the willingness to feel things. We could actually close the gap between what we know and what we actually follow through on if we're willing to feel stuff. I'm wondering, and I think that, you know, a lot of this book is about closing that gap. And I'm curious about your um, sense as to the emotional courage piece of it. Like, is is it important? Can you kind of plan your way around it so that you don't have to be willing to feel things? And I'd love to get your perspective on that.
1: I think emotional courage, what a great term. And I love that you are bringing that out into the world and getting people to think about that. Because the more we turn off and we turn off those feelings, I think the more the autopilot kicks in. Right. So I always say to clients, hey, permission to feel what you feel. I actually want you to get present to whether that's joy and happiness as much as getting present to maybe frustration or anger or sadness. But the key is, how do you not let those emotions run you? or to become those emotions, but rather just to experience them, let them inform you, and then say, okay, given my principles and my values and how I want to engage with my colleagues or my work, then how am I going to choose to show up? But without the truth of the feelings, it's almost impossible to really proceed with choice and real action.
0: And, and you actually have some really great in the book Um, some of these real action points, right? Which says like here, you know, like when you're in that place where you can take action, here's some actions that you should take. Um, By the way, I fall into all your pitfalls. Well, not really the I'll do it later pitfall, um, which, which just reinforces my I'll just do it now pitfall. Like you have the I'll just do more pitfall, I'll just do it now, I'll just do it myself, and then I'll just do it later. And I imagine that most people who fall into the I'll just do it now pitfall tend not to fall into the I'll just do it later pitfall or vice versa. But I keep myself uh, sort of m- more busy than I would need to. And I can't remember now whether this was in the, the four quadrants, whether that was in the purpose or in the process section of your book.
1: Yeah, the, uh, they're actually in both. So they're introduced in the pr- uh, purpose chapter. Yeah.
0: Great. So when I first, again, and I'm just sort of telling you what my experiences were, and I'm sharing this with listeners too because I think it's worth getting over these, these elements of resistance that I certainly felt because I think there's real value in this. I, I saw a four-quadrant model having spent many years in consulting and you know, now coaching and consulting and advising for you know 20 years. Um, I'm like, another four-quadrant model? Uh, <laughs> and, and in fact, I, I have found myself like I I went back to it and I drew out the four quadrants and I started listing things and then I had a conversation with my own assistant about, you know, her view and and you know what are things that should be in her for so so I would love for you to take us through your four quadrant model and kind of what fits into each quad- quadrant relatively briefly so that we can kind of get into the meat of it but I think it's a very useful way of thinking about you know, where should we should be spending our time and where we should not.
1: Great. The, yeah, the four quadrants, the purpose quadrants, uh, as found in the purpose chapter, uh, if you could imagine drawing an X-axis, uh, which is your contribution. What's the difference you want to make? What are your highest value-add projects? So, you know, for all the listeners out there, if you think about your tasks, your projects, and initiatives, um, if I were to ask you directly, which ones are your highest and best use? Or if I ever asked your boss or your board or your colleagues, what would they say? Well, so let's,
0: let's actually do this so that it could be real. Yeah. So, so there's at the top of the quadrant is contribution, and the left box is low contribution, and the right box is high contribution, the right column. The left column is low contribution, the, the right column is high contribution, and then the y-axis is passion,
1: right? right? And, yes.
0: And the top row is high passion. And the bottom row is low passion.
1: That's right. right? So
0: if I'm in the top right quadrant, I'm in high passion and high contribution.
1: Yes. And that is the sweet spot, right? Most people will tell you they feel like their best self, they're in flow, they're highly effective, engaged when you are both making a difference and feeling that high sense of passion and energy.
0: And then... Down below, there's I'm contributing. This is what you call tolerated quadrant two. I'm contributing, but I'm not particularly passionate about it. I'm not, it doesn't jazz me. It doesn't do anything for me, but it's probably important for me to contribute.
1: Yes. These are the places where many times your colleagues or 360 will yield where you should be focused and what folks hope you work on and you know it's value add, but perhaps you've gotten bored of it. Or it was never your favorite thing to do. And there's some part of everybody's job that falls, falls in this tolerate bucket.
0: Right. Yeah. And then you have quadrant three, which is the upper left quadrant, which is low contribution, but high passion. And, and you talk about elevating here. Talk about that for a minute.
1: Sure. So we all have those places where we love what we're doing, but, you know, the contribution and value adds a little unclear. And so either the guidance is to elevate yourself where maybe, you know, it's something you love to do from a previous role, but it's really time to let it go and give it to a direct report or somebody on your team. Or it's, hey, maybe you're seeing something that you're excited about and you need to socialize the idea and make sure you elevate the idea to other stakeholders.
0: Got it. And then quadrant four, which is low contribution and low passion. You say basically you don't like it. You're not contributing to it. There's no reason you should be doing it.
1: Yes. Try to eliminate. That's the eliminate box. So now here's a cut. So let's, let's play with this. Uh,
0: And actually let's use me as an example because why not? Because we're talking. Um, (laughs) So, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into my high contribution and high passion uh, quadrant. And I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs would feel the same way, right? Because I started the company. I run the company. I, you know, in many ways I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm the thought leadership of the company. And so, you know, I'm working with clients, I'm writing, I'm coaching, I'm speaking, I'm teaching all about leadership. You know, I'm, I'm sort of the, if, if you, and I've had conversations with clients about this, you know, when I've, when I've been on television or when I've shot, Video, I'm in the role of talent, right? Like what what the production companies or what the film industry calls talent versus the production side. Now, as an entrepreneur, I kind of do both, right? Because I'm running the company. But I would much rather just be in talent. Like I'd much rather someone else run this company and someone else do all the marketing and someone else, you know, write the proposals. And I just write, coach, speak, and teach about leadership and create thought leadership around that. So that's what I want to do. So my high contribution, high priority, high, high passion is in thinking about and spreading the word about and supporting other people in becoming better, stronger leaders. Right. Okay. So that's there. Now, um, if you go down to tolerate, there's like a ton of stuff, <laughs> right? It feels like my tolerate is huge because ultimately marketing all comes down to me. It's Bregman Partners, right? You have the same thing with Paravis Partners, right? So, so you know, the marketing and the proposals, if I'm going to actually teach or consult or coach around the stuff, then I probably have to be the one to write the proposal because I'm designing the thing. And my question is, for people like us, how do we not spend our lives in toleration?
1: Right. Yeah. It's such a classic problem, and I I was feeling it viscerally in my own body as you were describing it in terms of my own life. Um, I think, number one, the awareness of the distinction between the activities that put you in that quadrant one versus the tolerate box, and then to really look hard at that tolerate box and say, what portions of an activity could I continue to build a team around me? Um, so the second principle in the book is about your operating system. And this is where the purpose quadrants and your operating system really need to go hand in hand. So for example, my assistant um, color codes my calendar against these four quadrants. And she knows that there's only so much of the tolerate color that I can tolerate on any given day. So very strategic about threading that through the week in a way that I don't lose energy. And uh, more and more have had to supplement folks on our team um, or outsource to folks who can take pieces that relieve, re- relieve me from the tolerate box as often as possible.
0: Got it. Um, so I have a new uh, assistant and yeah. uh, she started about a week ago. And I, as soon as I sort of read this, I was like, okay, I want you to read these two chapters. At least like you can read the whole thing because it's a great book, but read purpose and process and then let's talk about it. And so I might actually ask you the favor. I'm I, I'm, I'm cornering you a little bit because I'm asking you on the podcast, but if our EAs can have a conversation, because I bet Maya could learn a lot from how you and your EA are working together. Maybe the four of us could have a conversation.
1: Absolutely. We'd be happy to. And I'm sure we would get ideas too. So it'd be a great group brainstorm for sure. Yeah, that would
0: be really fun. Yeah. Um, and because already it's like even in a basic thing, it's like, okay, so how do you color code in in, in Google Calendar? But you probably already know how to do that. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk about all this stuff. So then it comes to the elevate. and And this is, you know, things that are low contribution and high passion. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything to go in that box. And I'm curious about that. So, like, I found things where I found things like. I kind of make my own travel arrangements and I i don't know, is that a passion or is that just like a, an OCD control thing? You know, like I, right. there's a, I travel so much. So I kind of like, you know, if that hotel's not available, I know what other hotel I want. Or if, you know, I know where I want to sit on the plane, if that, you know, so I'm making all these micro decisions that are absolutely not a good use of my time. There's no question that it's a good use of my time. Right. Uh, and yet, yet i find myself doing it and so is that is does that go into that quad like does that mean that that's a passion even though i would hate to think like because i don't actually think it's a passion to do my own travel and yet i find myself gravitating towards it Um, or here's another example with finances like i you know it's my company right and so i'm pretty close to the finances and that feels like maybe that's high contribution but I don't actually know that that's high contribution. I don't know that I'm contributing so much, but I might just be controlling, or I might not yeah. want to lose control of the thing that I think you know, can make or break a company, and, and so I might just not be trusting enough. To, so I'm curious about those two examples. Like They don't feel like passions to me. I would love to have nothing to do with our finances, and yet yeah. I still find myself doing it and i don't know that it's i don't know that it doesn't belong in this quadrant of delegate hire eliminate but i'm a little afraid of getting too far from it so cure me
1: yeah so for sure those are activities that feel like to the left side right the right left column of the two quadrants for sure and it does for many of us we tend to hold on to those things out of control Um, It can feel really good. It's low-hanging fruit. It's things that tie to our preferences. But that's a place, for example, Peter, if we were to have a conversation with our EAs, uh, that would be a perfect thing for your EA to come to know or for anyone's EA to come to know um, so that really your time and energy is focused on things like this podcast or when you're out in the world writing and spreading your message. The world needs more of that. Than for you to, you know, obviously do your own travel plan. So it's great for, I think, all professionals just to notice where the places we are holding on to something because of control and not because it's actually a high passion or necessarily a high contribution. It's a great place to get help. Um, and to tie back to emotional courage, right? Letting go of control does require some vulnerability from all of us, right? And some patience that it may not. Uh, happen right away in the way that we want it to.
0: I hate when people use my own methodology against yeah. <laughs> me. No, but that's true. That's 100% true. It's That's hard. So let's say those things belong in that quadrant of delegate, right? Delegate, hire, or eliminate, right? And I can't eliminate it, so it's that's delegate it. And um, what then fits into, like, what are some examples of things that fit into high passion, low contribution?
1: So I have a lot of clients who, especially when they take on a new role, uh still love to do things like, for example, fix or solve certain problems that really now are meant for meant to empower their teams to do so that they can go on and take on the bigger role that they're in. So, for example, I had a CEO uh, who had originally been more of a COO type role out in the field. Um, and when he became CEO, the board said to him, you now need to find like 40 days back in the office instead of all the traveling that you used to do. And this is somebody who really loved being out with customers and out with the field. And we literally painstakingly went through his calendar and found 40 days and a lot of them were conferences and board work and other things he really enjoyed, but he realized weren't truly in the mandate for his first year as CEO. So
0: you're making actually an interesting point because you could argue for any CEO there's a very high contribution to them being out there in the world and meeting with customers and being at conferences. Like, it would be hard to argue that he's not contributing. Yes. But I think what you're saying is, looking at the whole picture, where is the highest and best use of contribution for this person? And and it's like, it's not just a question of high... Because you could put all of those things in high contribution, high passion. Yes. But you're saying...
1: We parse it a little thinner where the really top strategic customers we kept on his list. Right. Unfortunately, it was sort of a big segmentation to then figure out now how did he let other people get a chance for visibility while keeping his visibility in the truest, highest places.
0: Right. When you're CEO, everything is high contribution. And so you really have to prioritize. And actually, you call quadrant one, prioritize. You really have to prioritize, you know, given limited time, limited resources, what is the highest contribution that needs to go in that box? Everything else needs to go in other boxes. Yeah. Great. Okay. So I love that. Thank you. And so so sure. once we have purpose clear and we have a sense as to, okay, these are things I need to offload. These are things I need to spend a lot of my time on. Um, uh, you go into process, daily practices. And so I find that really important, and, and we could bring you know, EAs into the conversation or you know, other people who work with us because, because you know, when we're doing something that's more than just one person, and most of us you know, are doing things that are more than just one person or should be because if we're not, then it means that we're not making the highest and best use of you know, our talent. Uh, what Give us some, some advice about how to take what we've just been talking about and proceduralize it. I don't even know if that's a word, but to, yeah. to, to bring it into a process that allows us to be effective.
1: Process and purpose, as you mentioned, go hand in hand, right? You could have the best two by two quadrants all plotted, but if it's op- not operationalized into your calendar and the way you run your daily practices, um, you won't get very far. So for sure, um, first step, looking at the calendar, uh, as I mentioned, color coding against those quadrants so that you can get a quick snapshot You know, at any moment, being able to pull that up and say, wow, are my colors trending towards that upper right hand quadrant or not? And then down to the micro level of, you know, hey, Peter, when are your power hours? When do you feel the most clarity of thinking and energy? And let's make sure all those Q1 activities mostly fall into that protected time. so, so the the chapter goes into a lot of just basic blocking and tackling and good habits.
0: And it's both increasing your awareness, right, with the yeah. color coding, and then and then really thinking about your own energy and your own schedule and and how to maximize your ability to bring your passion and contribution to the activities that need it the most.
1: Absolutely. Great. How do we find
0: a productive balance between structure and spontaneity? Because you could go through this whole process and everything is super structured. And yet there's a spontaneous element that is probably important, or maybe you would say it's not as important. But I'm curious to get your thoughts around it.
1: I think the word awareness that you said previously is the, the number one key, right? So we all fall differently on the continuum of love of spontaneity versus structure. So if you're a more high structure person, like really honor that and go to town. I would say for folks who desire more spontaneity and are more emergent in their style, you know, as you go through that chapter, tread lightly, pick one or two things that give you freedom, you know? So I think for folks who spontaneity is very important and I think play for all of us is, Part of building in structure for busy people is actually looking for, uh, you know, unstructured, unstructured time, if you will.
0: <laughs> right, right. Time yeah. where you're cordoning it off to be spontaneous. Right. You can be spontaneous between two and three this afternoon. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, want the, you talk about purpose, process, and then people. And, and in the people, it's really about bringing out the best in your people. And, and also kind of matching the right people to the right work. So what I'm curious about is what do you do when you have someone who's great at a particular skill or talent? Like they're just, you know, like you brought them in to do X and they're really, really great at it. But their communication or their detail orientation or other elements are, are, are not up to snuff. And, and you do some stuff in order to address it, but, you know, you know they're really great at the stuff that you hired them for, but this other stuff is really getting in the way. Do you and, – and, and, and attempts to remediate haven't been so successful. How would you approach that?
1: Those are really tough situations, right, when folks are meeting one need in their role but not getting the whole role. And I think that happens a lot now, especially in high-growth businesses where people wake up and while they have the same title, the job just got bigger. So I think everything you name there would be what I would suggest, you know, step one, letting the person know that you have an aspiration for them to be more effective and to rise to the occasion and then providing that support and that coaching to see if they can grow in those ways. But I do think there's a point where for every leader and professional or team leader where you say, wow, even with our best efforts, the person just hasn't traveled far enough on that particular dimension to do that role well. Um, and one thing that comes to mind is there's a great YouTube video of Jeff Warner from LinkedIn talking about compassionate leadership and that leaving somebody in a role where they're just not performing actually is not compassionate. Right. So I think at that point,
0: what gets tough is if they are performing and they're not performing, right? right. It's not like they're just not performing. It's like they're actually performing, but they're also not performing. Right. Um, because they're you know, because there's different areas of the job that require different things. But maybe I guess what you're saying is, truthfully, that's not performing. Like the yeah. answer is, you know, half performing or performing in some stuff and not others, it like people are whole package and mm-hmm. there's probably someone who would be a better fit for the role in that way, is what you're saying.
1: Okay. Right. I think that's the assessment that would need to be made, right? Is there a way to reduce this person's scope just to what they're good with and make sure their title and comp are commiserate with that? Or is it that truly you now as a manager are taking on some of that underperformance, if you will, and compensating for somebody, which then limits your own time, or is it actually hurting the morale of the rest of the team? Right. Uh, seeing that, I think then you may have a tougher decision to make. Yeah, and
0: maybe there's ways of hiring someone to do the stuff that they can't do or don't do well, uh, or or maybe it's not, not right fit. I don't, I don't know the answer either. But that, those are good ways of thinking about it. Yeah. All right, quick in terms of presence. Uh, I have one particular question with you around that, and it's also personal, which is I find you, you're, when you talk about presence, you talk about the ability to show up, the way you want to show up with intention and also I talk a lot about intention versus impact right which is you could have the best of intentions but your impact might be off so you have to really be aware of kind of what your impact uh, what you want your impact to be and then and then and then do what you need to do to have that impact so here's what I notice about myself from a presence perspective I am really good at doing things and I'm much less good at not doing things, so mm-hmm. I have a predisposition towards action, mm. and so and let me give you an. Exa- I'm going to give you the super simple example that's not even work related, which is I exercise every single day. Not a problem. I, you know, I'm oh. not going to miss a day exercising. So I'm going to work out. That's an active thing to do to be fit. Yeah. But not eating things that I shouldn't eat is much harder for me. So right. it's like it should be the easiest thing in the world because actually exercise requires time and energy and effort and planning and all this stuff. Not eating stuff I shouldn't eat requires nothing, right? right. I mean it requires yeah. nothing but just it saves me time and it saves me energy and yet I'm much worse at it. Give me some advice.
1: That's a great question. I'm smiling here because I think I'm the opposite. (laughs) So I probably could use some advice back where exercise feels like it's the hardest thing. Um, So I think in a world number one of where between sleep, diet, and exercise, if we get some of that right, so number one, I would say take a victory lap for that. The predisposition towards action keeps you healthy and keeps you moving. And then the question is on the eating front from the when you find yourself reaching for the candy bar versus the apple, you know, is is there is that just default or is that um, a signal or cue? I know for me, when I start to reach for the chips or the candy, there's usually an underlying feeling that I'm I'm tired or or something else. So from in the book, in that particular chapter, there's some research uh, that actually came out of a great HBR article about if then so i guess my advice would be the next time you find yourself reaching for something hey if peter is what then you tend to reach for not good food sort of change the trigger if
0: that trigger happens give me a different behavior that it triggers onto yes okay good um, one last question, because uh, I, I, I want to touch each of these. Although you have a lot more information in the book, um, your fifth is peace. So it's purpose, process, people, presence, and peace. And and you talk a lot about acceptance and gratitude, and and um, rather than striving and and ego protection. Uh, you know, I I find it conceptually uh, appealing and you know easy to understand and you know, candy to the zen in me, but but on the other hand, I also feel like, look, I've achieved a lot, I've, you know, written a lot of books, I've contributed to a lot of books, and yet I still feel the survivor mentality. I still feel this mentality that has actually served me really well yeah. in my success, which is the opposite of peace. It's uh, like I got to keep running and I got to keep producing and I got to keep creating and I got to make something of myself. And like we could go into all of the psychology of it, but I'm curious how, how you take this advice of, you know, letting go and apply it when there is strong psychological need in people that drives them to do what they do. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they do. How do you, uh, how do you help people bridge that gap?
1: I think the answer to that question is, you know, the point of diminishing return. So I think there is a level of uh, inner dissatisfaction, desire for innovation, the inner part of ourselves that want to keep producing and achieving and expanding. And to your point, there's a real uh, high functioning, high benefit part of that. And so I would say, keep what's working for you that keeps you productive. And then my question would be, do you personally have a tipping point where, wow, it starts to really impact your health or your relationships or other commitments that are important to you? And where's that fine line between, you know, a healthy paranoia and hunger that keeps all of us motivated? And when does that become... Um, not productive or effective or when we get in our own way.
0: So I could identify that point, but identifying it and following through and shifting it are two very different things. It's sort of like, maybe the answer is emotional courage. I mean, that's always my answer, but you know, it's like, it might be the same thing as letting go of my admin travel and finances, right? Which is like, it's, there's still a nagging need uh, or drive uh, to be more better. I mean, that's probably why I react to like your best self kind of thing. It's like, right. when is it enough? Yeah. And I think I think part of at least my answer to it is there, there's not an easy answer to it. You have to be willing to feel the vulnerability of not being enough in order to sit with who you are in that moment and not keep striving for some moments. And yeah. And when that happens... You can't convince yourself that you're enough. You just have to sit with the, you know, emotional experience of not feeling enough and yet not really doing anything to change that. And maybe over time then that changes, but maybe it doesn't.
1: Right. But I think your point on getting present to those moments where we don't feel like we're enough. Right. And just the, the sheer experience of that courage to get present to it. I think, begins to create an alchemy towards that set of feelings um, to say, hey, we are enough. right?" And I have um, many leaders who are at real pinnacles in their careers where the conversation now is, wow, permission to just for a moment taste some satisfaction that you've arrived and that now you can begin to have fun and say, what would it mean to optimize for joy and for passion and for contribution and something different. Well, we're going to experiment
0: with this because this evening yeah. I'm leaving on vacation uh, with my wife and I just set out my uh, email out of office message and it says, and this tells you about how ineffectively I've done this in the past, I will be uh, without access to email uh, for the next week and then in parentheses I write for real this time because <laughs> yes. you know, I've tried it before and it doesn't really work but I'm really going to sort of cut the cord and see what I experience uh, over the next week with, with just Eleanor. We've been talking with Amy Jensu. Her book is The Leader You Want to Be, Five Essential Principles for Bringing Out Your Best Self Every Day. Amy, it's been really lovely uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Mm-hmm.
1: Likewise, Peter, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. And thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.